like singing that song. That's good. You like that one, Ben? Did you sing that one before? No? Well, you can't remember that one. All right. Good. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. A couple of many sisters are in town. Elizabeth, good to see you. Rebecca, nice. Nice to have you here. It's always good when your brother speaks that we got to have the whole family here if we can. Listen to him. Wait, wait a minute. Is Karen here? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. All right. She'll be coming, Lord willing. But Andy, good to have you here to, uh, on the adult Sunday school class. At the house next door, we are going into, like Ben remembered, he said, oh, we did this last year. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, some of the uh, uh, the voice of the martyrs um, uh, uh, tapes we have, we have about, we have four, we have four of those yet to go through yet during the next six weeks. And we're going to also have uh, uh, two Sundays of uh, videotape from them. Uh, uh, who is it that did the tapes? What's the name of the company? Yeah, Voice of the Martyrs are doing it. But, but we'll do uh, the last two weeks before we start our regular Sunday school classes will be of, uh, of the life and, and, uh, and of Jesus. You know, a nice, nice video, uh, uh, two videos that we'll be watching that. For whoever who wants to go over to the house next door, some of the older kids like to stay, that would be fine. But uh, any of the older ones, that, and they want to come and listen to, we have, um, uh, we have a number of missionaries that we're going to look at during the next four weeks. All right, for that one that we did not go to last year. So, uh, uh, and along with that, you know, these are martyrs. So, it's a cartoon video series, but it, it talks about the life of how they gave their life to the Lord in passing out missionary tracts, uh, uh, Bibles to Korea, to China, to all over the world. Uh, older missionaries that uh, uh, we might recognize by name, most of us, uh, but uh, the kids will certainly be perhaps new to them. Uh, but sometimes when you, when we're looking at martyrs, we're looking at people that uh, have been killed for Christ. And uh, uh, so talk with your kids, and we will have a synopsis of the video going home with them. So uh, challenge your kids as to what they saw in the video, and uh, and uh, see see if, uh, if it's a challenge to them in their own lives as well. So that'd be a treat. Well. Let's open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for bringing us here to the chapel this morning. We pray for a blessing upon all those yet still coming. We pray and thank you for your church gathering on this, the Lord's Day. All over the world, Lord, we just pray that, that uh, as Christians we might bring glory to you as we, as we uh, think of you and as we remember you and your death and, and uh, in our remembrance meeting and then our family Bible hour and all the activities today, but especially for our Sunday school time here at the chapel. We pray for a blessing upon the kids and the things that they're doing from upstairs to the house next door to Mr. Andy taking the adult Sunday school class here this morning. So bless our time. We thank you for the opportunity to be together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see here. Um, I don't have any other announcements, I don't think, but I do have one other song, and we'll get right to that. But on the same page, if you still have it open, how about number 214? Sang number 212, Majesty. We're going to sing number 214, Meekness and Majesty, this time. Meekness and Majesty, as the 
Good to see you all here. Good to be here myself as well. Um, Mike asked me to pick out a minor character in the Bible to talk about this morning. And I picked out Jonathan. And the more I studied, the more I realized he was really a key figure in some ways. So yet here we are. (laughs) So there are are several familiar stories about Jonathan. Um, They're familiar in 1 Samuel. And we're going to be kind of doing a whirlwind tour, not focusing as much on those well-known stories, but looking at his place uh, in the larger context of the events taking place in the nation, especially as it relates to who he was specifically. He played a critical role in the process of Israel's transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. He was the natural heir to the throne of Saul, but he was totally supportive of the man God chose to take his place as the ruler of the nation. His story is one not just of loyalty to David, but more so of loyalty to the Lord. Of course, Saul was the first uh, king that was anointed by Samuel as king of Israel. The elders of Israel had asked Samuel to have a, a human king when they saw that Samuel's sons were corrupt and that they would not be suitable replacements for Samuel in the position of judge and prophet. Uh, Samuel's sons were corrupt and they were perverting justice. The people were, unfortunately, at the same time by rejecting Samuel's sons, rejecting the leadership of the Lord as they had done many times before. Uh, the Lord allowed their request for a king, but Samuel had provided a very, but he then did provide a very clear warning that life under a king would be very different than the life they'd previously been living just under the leadership of the Lord through the uh, prophets and the judges. Their sons and daughters would be conscripted into serving the king both in battle and in times of peace. He would tax their land and their livestock. They wouldn't have control over it themselves anymore to the point where they'd complain about their choice of having a king. Still, they wanted a king that they could see to judge and lead and fight for them. The Lord led Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, and he prophesied among the prophets. He was publicly anointed shortly after, and he was eagerly welcomed by the Israelites. Uh, there is a very exciting time for them, since they'd been longing for this human figurehead. Some people, though, doubted his ability to deliver the nation from their enemies. They were being kind of assaulted from all sides, but he was quickly proven when he rallied over 300,000 men together 
So he did it by threatening to kill their oxen if they didn't follow him. So pretty uh, aggressive uh, encouragement to join. Uh, they were driving out the Ammonites who were besieging the town of uh, area of Jabesh Gilead. And after the battle and the victory, Saul was made king in Gilgal. Uh, compared to many leaders in Israel that followed him, Saul had, and even before him, Saul had a relatively small family. I think it's because he really came from a humble background, too. Uh, although he did have a concubine, he had only one recorded wife named Ahinoam. They had four sons. Jonathan was the oldest, followed by Ishvi, Malchishua, and Ishbosheth. They had two daughters, Merib and Michael. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and read verses 1 through 6, where Jonathan is first uh, introduced here. So 1 Samuel 13, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and in cliffs, in cellars and in pits. So in verse 1 that we read here, Saul's age and the length of his reign are both addressed, but the Hebrew texts have uh, some omissions that leave out the numbers, unfortunately. Uh, The second digit of the length of Saul's rule, the the second number was two in this verse, but the first part was missing. And Acts 13.21 describes Saul's rule as being about 40 years. So we know that Saul reigned for 42 years, and this is what most translations have there. Uh, Others consider the two here to indicate the number of years into his rule that the events of the chapter are taking place. There's similarly a number of ideas about the age of Saul when he became king. Most translations list 30 years of age, while some others think it is closer to 40. Uh, So he wasn't a real young man. We know that he died in battle, so he couldn't have been more than about 80 after the 40 years of rule, even taking into account the longer lifespans of a little bit over 100 years old around that time. Uh, Jonathan is introduced in this chapter as a commander of a 1,000 soldiers, so we'd think he'd have to be around at least 20 or maybe 15 at the very youngest. Uh, so he was uh, born and you know an, a young adult at the time that Saul uh, began ruling. Uh, so as we continue on in these verses, Jonathan and his men destroyed the Philistine garrison, and the nation of uh, the Philistines quickly reassembles following that defeat to re- retaliate against Israel, raising a large army of their own. The Israelites in the area trembled in fear and hid wherever they could because they were hugely outmatched in numbers. Uh, It was at this point, early in Saul's reign, that he lost the Lord's favor. He was to wait seven days for Samuel to arrive, but he became impatient when Samuel wasn't there after seven days. 
he made the burnt offering himself, and then uh, right then Samuel showed up and saw what was going on. Now looking at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, well, let me, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul has been described as praying when he should be acting and acting when he should be praying. He doesn't wait on the Lord and feels that he needs to take charge of the situation and be in control. It seems like he wanted to use the power of God when it was convenient for him to accomplish his own goals rather than submitting his actions to the the leading of the Lord. I think this is something we need to evaluate in our own attitude about how we approach different situations. Are we waiting on the Lord or do we feel like we need to be taking charge and just going forward? It can be very exciting to just stand back, be patient, and see how the Lord works in a situation. Uh, Saul's disobedience caused the Lord to take the kingship away from him and his descendants. It's hard to imagine this type of transition going smoothly, but the Lord began a lengthy series of supernatural events, I would say, that enabled the process to, to go as smoothly as really it could. Jonathan was a key figure in this, giving his allegiance to both his father, the current king, and David, the future king, even though he himself had the most to lose uh, in this in this trade-off, so to speak. We immediately see the contrast to Saul's attitude in Jonathan. We're going ahead to chapter 14 uh, and reading through verse 15. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree which is in Migran. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag or rock outcropping on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north, opposite Michmash, and the other on the south, opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, The Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. 
And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some of them to death after him. That first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, was about twenty men within about half a furrow and an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. So Saul and his men were staying back in the relative safety of Gibeah, while Jonathan and his armor-bearer snuck out of the camp to face the Philistines alone. Jonathan explained the plan to his armor-bearer they would trust God fully, knowing that he could work with only two people or an entire army. He seems to recall God's promise from Genesis 17 to give all the land of Canaan to Israel, and Jonathan refers to the Philistines as the uncircumcised. They were standing in the way of God's promise to Israel. The way Jonathan proceeded was in some ways like how the Lord worked through Gideon. Uh, There was no way that their victory could be ascribed to anything other than the power of the Lord. Jonathan's armor-bearer in turn trusted him and encouraged him in in the mission that they were embarking on together. The next part of the story shows more of Jonathan's character and his devotion and submission to his father, King Saul. While Jonathan was out of the camp conquering the Philistines, Saul had made a costly blunder by weakening the physical strength of his army. They had joined the battle as the Philistines were on the run, but quickly grew weary. Let's continue reading from verse 24 of chapter 14. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed to be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary. So Jonathan realized that Saul's oath for the people to not eat uh, as sort of a sign of mourning was uh, misguided. They needed strength for the battle, even though Saul wasn't expecting to enter in the battle because Jonathan had went out on his own and had this uh, great success. After they defeated the Philistines, they, followed, they, they saw the defeat that Jonathan had done. They went after them and pursued them and began gathering the spoils. They were so hungry that they began butchering and eating the meat with blood still in it. This was a sin that was reported to Saul, who was disappointed with the people. Saul knew that something was amiss when he didn't receive an answer from the Lord when he inquired of him. Let's pick up again in verse 37. 
Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. I don't think at that point he knew that it was Jonathan. He's just using Jonathan as an example. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. They, they knew what was going on and were kind of nervous about what was to come. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, May God do to do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So we see here how Saul used the process of casting lots to identify Jonathan as the guilty party. And Jonathan confessed to what he had done, even though he wasn't aware of the oath that he violated, wasn't willing on his part. He didn't even defend himself. He accepted his fate, recognizing the authority that his father had. He was willing to lay down his life to honor his father. Thankfully, the people did defend him. They reminded Saul that the entire Philistine defeat was thanks to Jonathan. The Lord delivered him in this situation as well. Uh, Chapter 15 describes another rebuke of Saul by the Lord based on another sin he committed and not completely destroying the Amalekites as the Lord commanded him to do. Instead, Saul and the people took the best part of the spoil of the Amalekites instead of destroying it. In chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, we read, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, as is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So this continues developing the larger context that Jonathan is living within. The Lord has allowed the people to have an earthly king, but Saul's failings mean that his own descendants will not succeed him on the throne. Immediately after Saul discussed this message with Samuel, the Lord sent Samuel to anoint David as the next king. Chapter 16 describes the pivotal point in the transition from Saul's kingdom to David's kingdom long before he is seated on the throne. Let's look at verses 12 to 14 of 1 Samuel 16. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, referring to David, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. 
So this is really the transitional point of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Uh, the spirit where the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and entered David. The exact chronology of the rest of this chapter and the next, when David defeats Goliath, aren't, aren't totally clear. But David and his heart-playing ability are found to be the cure to Saul's terrorizing spirits. There's no doubt that this was a divine arrangement. It was facilitated by one of Saul's servants who said in verse 18, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So David became an attendant and an armor-bearer to Saul, and Saul loved him greatly, it says. Saul was further impressed by David when he killed Goliath in chapter 17, which led to the defeat of the Philistine army. This victory also thrust David into the public eye. Although he had already received the anointing by Samuel, David respected Saul and his kingship until the end of his life, until the end of Saul's life. The rest of the book describes the tumultuous relationship they had as Saul grew very jealous of David. Now, chapter 18 describes what Jonathan is perhaps best known for, which is his friendship with David. Now, let's read the first five verses of chapter 18. Now, it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So earlier I went into detail about the ages of Saul and Jonathan when Saul became king. It's often thought, and we picture it often, that uh, Jonathan and David were about the same age, but that's not really the case at all. Second Samuel 5.4 says that David was 30 years old when he became king. We know that um, Saul was king for 42 years, so David wasn't even born until about 10 years into Saul's reign. While we don't know for certain the timing of Jonathan's first victory in 1 Samuel 13, it is likely that Jonathan was about 15 to 20 years old when Saul became king, like we mentioned earlier. That would make Jonathan about 30 years older than David, or probably about 20 years older at the very least. And Jonathan took a liking to David right away. He knew they were cut from the same cloth, so to speak. They both loved the Lord and trusted him completely to accomplish their victories. When he was younger, Jonathan had defeated the Philistines at Geba in a similarly miraculous and courageous way as David killing Goliath. Beyond just a natural connection based on shared values and uh, sort of approach to life, I guess you could say, I think the Spirit of the Lord influenced Jonathan directly to feel so positively about David. Usually a friendship takes time, a lot of time, you know, often years to deepen to this point. But in the case of uh, Jonathan and David, the connection seems to be immediate. Uh, verse 3 describes a covenant that Jonathan made to David. A covenant was the most solemn and binding agreement, and it was highly respected in the ancient world. It was unlike many other covenants, though, that were made between people in the Bible. For instance, between Laban and Jacob in Genesis 31, 
because usually those type of covenants were made out of fear and an attempt to maintain uh, some degree of peace. This covenant was different. It was based on friendship and love. At first I was confused, though, about the meaning or, you know, what, was, what did they actually promise to each other uh, in this covenant since it's not directly described. What was Jonathan actually agreeing to? However, doing some study revealed that the answer is in verse 4. The clothes that were worn by a sovereign or by the heir to the throne were very symbolic of their position. We see in Esther chapter 6 what Haman considers to be the highest honor he could be given. For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor." So by giving David his royal robe and his armor and his weapons, really, Jonathan was essentially abdicating the throne and submitting himself to David. He was honoring David above himself. This was the ultimate act of humility for a person in his position. Unlike his father, Jonathan placed a higher priority on the nation of Israel and on the will of the Lord than on his own interests and his own success. So we see that after this blessing by Jonathan, David is sent out by Saul, and he prospered as a commander in battle. His success over Goliath leads to praise by the people as his national recognition builds, as we'll read in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 18. It happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased them. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So, the rest of 1 Samuel really details Saul's growing jealousy towards David. He tried to kill him with his spear multiple times while David is playing his harp and you know in service to the king. The more success in battle that David had, leading to increasing popularity with the people, the more Saul resented him. God was blessing David greatly through this time. Saul used the prospect of marrying his daughters to trip up David. Perhaps he thought the Philistines would fight harder against the son-in-law of the king. He wanted David to kill 100 Philistines as a dowry for his daughter Michael in an attempt to have David killed in the process, and David went out and killed 200 people. So they were married, and Michael really loved David, and this deepened the anger that Saul felt toward him as even his own daughter gave affection to David, who Saul saw as the arrival to the throne. So chapter 19 describes how Jonathan defended David to his father, showing how he was able to honor both the current and the future king at the same time. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. 
I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I shall tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall now be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. So we see, uh, you know, going forward, there's a lot of, you know, questioning. David is very concerned, obviously, about Saul's feeling towards him as he's tried to kill him already multiple times. But here he's restored to service uh, thanks to the intervention and the persuasiveness of Jonathan. Unfortunately, Saul's jealousy took over again after David's next victory in battle. This time it was Michael, David's wife, and Jonathan's sister who snuck him out of his house so that he could escape death, uh, escape these men that Saul had sent to kill him in the morning. Chapter 20 goes into more detail about Jonathan and David's relationship as David seeks to know Saul's feelings towards him yet again. David doesn't understand what he's done to offend the king. Does Saul still want him dead, or does he have any favorable feelings toward him at all? It becomes apparent in this chapter also that both Jonathan and Saul knew that David would replace Saul's lineage on the throne. Let's read verses 12 to 17 of chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send you and send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord, that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. So out of his love for David and their close friendship, Jonathan is much more concerned that he finds favor in David's eyes than in the eyes of King Saul, his father. One interesting aspect of Jonathan's, at least how he comes across a couple times really, he seems to regard his own life relatively casually. Earlier we saw this when Saul said that he had to pay for this oath that he had violated. And he seems to be aware that there are far more important you know, things going on. And he's just sort of a small player in this bigger picture of God working in the nation of Israel. And in verse 15, Jonathan makes David promise that he will also show love and kindness to his descendants. So Jonathan goes to this feast where David is absent, and Saul realizes that Jonathan's trying to cover for David not being there, and he becomes enraged as he realizes where Jonathan's true allegiance lies. So let's look at verses 30 to 34. 
Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So you can see from Saul's perspective how he just gets more and more frustrated. You know, he's trying to preserve his family lineage and their place on the throne, even though God has told him that, you know, that's not going to happen. And he's tried to kill David multiple times. He's trying to look out for his own son, and his own son is the one who's saying, no, you know, I'm not going to support this idea at all. Uh, so that's um, <clears throat> quite, uh, quite a dynamic going on in Saul's mind, I'm sure, as he, and really he's afflicted with evil spirits as well. So Saul resorts to what seems to be a standard response in anger where he throws his spear in an attempt to kill the target of his contempt. And it kind of made me wonder, you know, are there times when, if this is how Saul reacts, are there times with other people where they were killed by this? Uh, Jonathan is, of course, angered, and he storms out. He's placed in a very awkward place by his father's rebellion and and jealous spirit, but he chooses to honor the will of the Lord. So, uh, in a familiar story that we won't really go over in detail, Jonathan meets with David to deliver their prearranged signal by shooting arrows for his servant to retrieve. The response indicated that David needed to leave since it was no longer safe for him to remain in Gibeah. Jonathan sent his servant home and then met David in person. While David had gotten the message, Jonathan wasn't willing to let him leave without saying goodbye. They apparently weren't sure they would have the option to meet face-to-face, which is why they would arrange this type of signal, but God gave them the opportunity to do that. Uh, So in verses 41 and 42 of chapter 20, we read, When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went into the city. So the Bible doesn't describe in a lot of detail you know, what Jonathan and David's friendship looked like on a day-to-day level. We know they clearly had a close connection. It seems they both lived near Saul's house in the capital city at some periods between going out to various battles. It's probably safe to assume they saw each other quite a bit. They clearly had similar roles militarily, both being commanders of quite a few men. Uh, It seems that Jonathan's humility caused him to be generous in his assistance to David. And really, Jonathan was the one who had, at least from a power structure standpoint, the more power and authority. Uh, And really, David didn't have a lot to offer to Jonathan. It was at this point that Saul's anger toward David forced him into exile, and his friendship with Jonathan entered a new phase. Uh, I was thinking... One of the difficult things I've found growing older is that close friendships change over time. 
as people get married and start families, their spare time is spent completely differently than it was when you know, they were single. Instead of spending hours with friends several times a week, I, I thought of a couple times in my life where there's a couple friends I saw every day for, I mean, over a month. I mean, spending time working on things together. Uh, so instead of being able to do that anymore, your focus rightly becomes on your own household. And time spent with friends goes to hours a month or even hours a year. It becomes even harder when the, you know friends move out of town and it becomes harder to stay close you know, in that type of relationship. And some people are good at catching up by phone. Not something I really do too much, and you know, a couple texts now and then, and then getting together occasionally to see each other is a good a good time. It's a bittersweet feeling to know the closeness of those friendships and kind of what you miss about those times. They were really necessary for that time in life, but you and they both grow in other areas, and you don't need that level of support from each other. I was thinking that's one of the great things about having a wife that you love spending time with is that you know you don't have to leave. You get to experience the joys and the challenges of life together. Uh, so Jonathan and David found themselves at this stage of friendship, and it doesn't appear that they ever spent a lot of time together again. David was on the run since Saul was obsessed with killing him. He was so blinded by jealousy that he saw David only as a threat to the throne. This was another way that he rebelled against the will of the Lord. So in chapters 21 to 30, David's forces and influence grow stronger while Saul's kind of growing weaker at the same time. We are only aware of one more meeting between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 23, uh, verses uh, 15 through 18. Now David became aware that Saul had come to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. So despite Saul's pursuits of David, Jonathan makes a point to seek him out and encourage him. He reiterated his commitment to David, and they made another covenant. The next time we see Jonathan is at the time of his death at the end of 1 Samuel. The Lord allows Saul to be killed in battle because he consulted with a medium as he was forbidden to do. We see Jonathan honoring his father even to death as he fights alongside him. In 1 Samuel 31 verses 1 and 2, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. So Saul's death, as we know, follows shortly after that in the same battle, and his body and those of his sons are displayed as trophies by the Philistines before being stolen away by the people at Jabesh-Gilead for proper mourning. When David heard the news, he mourned as well. David inquired of the Lord who sent him to Hebron, and he was anointed king of Judah, and then uh, shortly after, following a time of uh, a lot of internal conflict over all of Israel. In Second Samuel 4, we read about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was only five years old when his father was killed. His nurse whisked him away, and in her hurry to leave, he fell and became lame. So he really, it, it, sound, it sounds to me like he was kind of what we call now, uh, you know, full disability, so to speak, where he couldn't really look after himself and provide for himself. But David had not forgotten his promise to Jonathan, and in 2 Samuel 9, 
he reached out to Mephibosheth and showed kindness to him. He made, you know, made sure that arrangements were made to take care of him. So he honored Jonathan even uh, after his death. So, um, so looking at Jonathan is really neat for me to be able to see this example. And really, there's, I mean, you'd really have to twist things to find anything negative about him. I'd say, and just a great example of full trust and full devotion to the Lord, not caring about himself at all. I mean, his his humility was really uh, impressive and essentially training and encouraging his replacement to the throne. So um, I think there's a lot of applications we can take away from that in our own lives just as we think about what it means to be that devoted that you're not, you know, concerned about yourself at all. So I know our time is getting short, and I will, if, although if anyone has any comments, I'd be happy to hear those as well. But uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for this godly example that you've given us in Jonathan. Uh, Even though his father was a bad example and he uh, in some ways had to challenge him and a lot of times we just thank you for his devotion to you and uh, and again the example that he is to us. We thank you for your your son uh, of David and from David's line I should say and Just thank you for the opportunity we have to serve him and to worship him here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.